Remember One Minute Mysteries? A man is found face down and dead in the desert with only a backpack on, no footsteps near his body and nothing else around him for miles and miles? What happened? Or a woman is found hanging in a locked room with no furniture and only a puddle of water beneath her. What happened? How about this one? A man is found shot to death with three bullet wounds in his body, alone, with no gun, inside a locked and bolted room. What happened? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a fan of a good murder mystery and relish a seemingly unanswerable riddle. Not that I'm very good at solving them. Usually I tap out after about 30 seconds and start thinking about napping. These conundra are usually the stuff of fiction. But once in a while, there is a real-life murder mystery that bubbles to the surface and appears utterly impossible to solve a real-life one-minute mystery that almost a century later remains unsolved. As you've probably already guessed, there's a lot more to the story. Fortunately for you, it's no mystery how to get more strange and unexplained. Why, you only need to hop on over to patreon.com slash strange and unexplained, where for just five bucks a month, you get three bonus episodes plus other fun exclusive content. And for just seven bucks, you get all that plus all the regular episodes ad free. We've got cantankerous ghost children, haunted theme parks that, spoiler alert, probably aren't haunted, and other weird mysteries. Come join the community of intimate strangers over on patreon.com slash strange and unexplained to see what all the fun is about. But now, back to this particular mystery. On March 10th, 1929, the New York Times ran a story with this headline, Laundry Owner Slain at Work in His Shop. The piece reported, quote, Isidore Fink, 30 years old of 52 East 133rd Street, was shot dead at 10.30 o'clock last night in the rear room of the Fifth Avenue Laundry, which he owned at 4 East 132nd Street, end quote. But this straightforward description of the crime didn't do the incredibly bizarre circumstances any justice. Around 10.30 p.m. on March 9, 1929, a neighbor heard a scuffle coming from inside the laundry at 4 East 32nd Street and ran to get a police officer. When Officer Albert Cattenborn arrived about 15 or so minutes later, all was quiet inside the laundry. The lights he could see were on, but the door was locked and apparently bolted from the inside with a 7-inch steel sliding bolt. So Cattenborn enlisted the help of a rather small teenage boy named Roseman Hull to climb on his shoulders and through the small window above the door, known as a transom. Once inside, the boy found Isidore Fink lying face down on the floor with three gunshot wounds, two on the left side of his chest and one through his left thumb. The boy unlocked the door for the officer and the investigation began. Isidore Fink had moved to East Harlem in 1921 from either Russia or Poland and lived with a roommate, Max Sternberg, one block away from the laundry business he owned and operated. Though the Times reported that Fink was 30, he may have actually been 37. Fink's brother also owned and operated a laundry in New York City, but the brothers were estranged. 
Other than these basic facts, no one knew much about Fink. He had no female friends. From the sound of it, it doesn't seem like he had any friends of any gender. Even his roommate, Sternberg, didn't seem to know much more about Fink than anyone else did. There was also very little information offered up by the initial investigation at the crime scene. The murder weapon was missing, but judging from the bullet holes and spent bullets, it had been a 32 pistol. It was possible the pistol had a silencer because no one reported hearing gunshots. The bullets to the chest pierced Fink's heart, abdomen, liver, and gallbladder. There was pistol residue on Fink's hand, suggesting the gun had gone off at close range, but there was no powder on his chest. It's likely the bullet through his hand was a defensive wound. There appeared to be nothing taken from the scene, no money or valuables. Aside from the front door, which, remember, had been bolted shut, there was a single locked and barred window. Police had a real locked door mystery on their hands. What exactly is a locked door mystery, you ask? In 1841, Edgar Allan Poe, of the Raven Crying Nevermore fame, published a piece in Graham's magazine titled The Murders in the Rue Morgue, in which two women are found murdered, one in the courtyard having apparently come from the broken window on the fourth floor, and the other stuffed up the chimney of the room on the fourth floor. The room, however, is locked, with the key on the inside of the door, meaning someone couldn't have locked it from the outside. I won't give away the ending, but let's just say it's bananas. The Murders at the Room Morgue is considered the first true detective story ever published and is generally seen as the beginning of the locked door mystery genre, though there was an Irish novelist who'd published a murder mystery titled A Passage in the Secret History of an Irish Countess, in 1838, but for some reason, he doesn't get the credit. I can't imagine why, what with that catchy title. As I'm sure you've put together, a locked door mystery is one in which the answer seems impossible. As in, how could the killer do this and get out of a room that was locked from the inside? But Isidore Fink was not a character in a detective story. This murder wasn't fiction. This was an actual IRL bona fide locked room mystery. Not a Poe to be seen. Clearly, investigators had their work cut out for them. Because there wasn't a weapon at the scene, police ruled out suicide, and the money and valuables left behind ruled out the possibility of a robbery gone wrong. Fink's roommate, Max Sternberg, told police he had come by to visit Fink around 9.45 that evening and saw two people leaving. He said he believed they'd been there inquiring about buying used underwear. These two were later identified as Mary Perry, no, not the woman from the Great British Bake Off, and James Portit, who both acknowledged that they had been at the laundry looking to buy used clothes. It was common practice back then for laundries to sell unclaimed items. According to Elizabeth Applebaum in a 1997 piece for the Detroit Jewish News, nothing was out of place in the room. Quote, aside from a bracket broken off from the transom and laying about one foot from the door, nothing was out of order. Police determined that the bracket had not been broken when Hull entered, which means either Fink or the killer was responsible. End quote. Though how or why the bracket was broken, I don't know. Perhaps it came off from the force of the door being shut? It was unlikely that Fink had opened the door to someone he didn't recognize. 
He was apparently constantly worried about being held up because crime was on the rise in the area. When he worked, especially at night, he kept the door locked and would only open it for people he knew. Of course, it's not impossible that Fink knew his assailant and had let them in. But police thought perhaps he'd been shot outside the laundry and he'd managed to get himself inside and lock the door before collapsing. However, the medical examiner said that the placement of the bullet wounds and the extent of the damage would have killed him almost instantly, making it highly unlikely that he would have had the time, strength, or wherewithal to get himself locked inside the room. Next, police wondered if perhaps someone had shot him through the window above the door. But the medical examiner reminded them that the gunpowder residue on Fink's hand suggested that he'd been very close to the gun when that shot went off. Likely, he was either struggling to get the gun away from the assailant, or at the very least, he was trying to block himself from the shot. Maybe, police thought, the killer had climbed in through the window above the door, but this was also dismissed when they realized how absurd that would have been. First, the likelihood of a witness seeing someone climbing up to the window from the street was high. It wasn't that late at night. Second, why wouldn't they have then walked out the front door after firing the shots? Why would the killer climb in through a small and hard-to-reach window above the door, fire three times, and then climb back up through the same window? Plus, I would imagine they would have needed a chair or something to reach the thing from the inside, and there was no evidence of anything like that. If the killer had somehow managed to parkour their way up to the window, surely there would be scuff marks or something on the door and the door frame? At a loss, police turned to the person closest to Fink, his roommate, Max Sternberg. After all, Sternberg had admitted to stopping by the laundry shortly before the woman heard the scuffle inside. He told police there had been a, quote, unfamiliar black couple, end quote, at the laundry looking to buy used underwear. Of course, if they had been inside the laundry, they wouldn't have been unfamiliar to Fink because he wouldn't have let them inside if they were. Anyway, Sternberg claimed to have left when he saw the couple in the laundry. Historian Kevin McRuder said it was unlikely anyone was looking to buy used underwear. True, people did often buy used clothing from laundries, but underwear? Come on. Plus, to quote McGruder, quote, The linking of black people with criminality was very much part of society at the time. The idea was that wherever black people go, they bring crime. End quote. At the time? Sir, it's still like that today, nearly a century later. Anyway... With Sternberg pulling the age-old, a black person did it alibi, police wondered if Sternberg himself wasn't the killer. If Fink would only open the door for people he knew, who better than Fink's only friend in New York City? Perhaps, they theorized, Sternberg was angry over something, showed up with a gun, scuffled with Fink at the door, shot him three times, and then Fink managed to close the door and lock it behind him. But how could that have been what happened when the medical examiner told them it would have been impossible? Well, it turns out it may not have been quite as impossible as they thought. By now, if you've watched enough medical dramas, you've probably learned a few things. Among those things are, one, doctors are all super hot and are regularly fucking in the janitor's closets. 
Two, at least one doctor per hospital is struggling with a secret pill addiction. And three, people can, in fact, survive after being mortally wounded long enough to, for instance, drive themselves to the hospital. Emily Ensi Narciso, a physician assistant in California, told the New York Times, You could run 25 feet if shot in the chest, depending on where the bullet hit. I've seen people drive themselves to the emergency department after being shot and then just simply run through the front door. According to a piece on CrimeWire, pathologist Sir Sidney Smith published a paper in the British Police Journal in 1942 that highlighted a case in which a man shot himself through the chin into his brain and then walked across the street to his hotel where he rang the doorbell and then told the maid who answered the door not to worry about all the blood and that he was going up to his room to wash up. He then put his umbrella in the umbrella rack and hung up his coat and went up to his room where he finally collapsed and died. So it turns out it actually is quite possible to keep on trucking through a mortal gunshot wound long enough to shut the door behind you. Crime writer Kevin McQueen told the New York Times, quote, only two people could possibly have slid the door's bolt, Fink or his killer. And since it was impossible for the killer to have done it, it must have been Fink, end quote. And look, I'm no stickler for logic, but this statement makes no sense. If it was impossible for the killer to have locked the door, then not only two people could possibly have locked the door. Only one person could possibly have locked the door. Something can't be both possible and impossible at the same time. But more to the point, I understand a person can survive for some time after being shot like this, long enough to, say, get into their place of business, close the door, and bolt it shut. But, and go with me on this, his left hand was shot, yes? So surely his left hand was bloody. The left side of his chest was shot twice, yes? Surely he would have clutched at the wounds? Isn't that sort of what people tend to do when they've been shot? And surely he would have done said clutching with his non-shot hand. In other words, his right hand. If he had to close the door and bolt it, surely there would have been bloody fingerprints all over the door and the lock? But let's say he didn't clutch his wounds and managed to get the door closed and locked with his non-bloodied right hand. Don't you suppose the blood from three bullet holes would have led from his body to the place at which he'd been shot? Unless it didn't manage to make it into the report, there's no mention of a trail of blood. If there had been bloody handprints on the door, I think we would have heard about it. How did Fink manage all that moving around and shutting doors without getting blood all over the place? Another thing I didn't see posited was the possibility that the teenage boy who'd been foisted through the window to unlock the door took the gun. Nobody could see him while he was alone in the room with Fink's body. He could have very easily been like, sweet, free gun. Then again, one would think if Fink shot himself twice in the chest, there would have been gunpowder residue on his chest. But that's not mentioned anywhere in the reports either. So that's where the case was, and that's where it has remained. To this day, no one has figured out who shot Isidore Fink and how on earth they got out through a locked door. Do you have any ideas, strangers? I, for one, am at a loss. 
Now, as I laid out in my brilliantly written opening paragraph, not all locked room mysteries need to be in a locked room, as evidenced by the one with the guy laying face down in a desert. Take, for example, the case of Letitia Tarot, whose mysterious murder contains nary a single locked door to speak of. On May 16, 1937, at around 6 p.m., Letitia Tarot, a 29-year-old Italian woman, left a dance hall in a suburb of Paris and made her way to the bus stop. A little less than half an hour later, she got off the bus and entered a metro station. She bought a ticket and boarded a first-class car on the next train to the city. The platform and the second-class cars were busy with crowds of holiday revelers celebrating your favorite holiday and mine, Pentecost Sunday. But Letitia was all alone in a first-class car when the train took off at 6.26 p.m. and arrived at the next stop, Port Dory, only 45 seconds later. At Port Dory, six people boarded the first-class car Letitia was in, and as they moved to their seats, Letitia slumped forward and fell to the ground. She had a nine-inch dagger lodged in the back of her neck. Everyone was, understandably, completely baffled about how someone managed to get into the train car, stab Letitia, and disappear so quickly that not one of the multitude of holiday revelers on the train or platform noticed it. According to a piece in the Pittsburgh Sun-Telegraph from October 3rd of that year, quote, less than a minute after she bought her ticket, the empty train pulled into Port de Charenton and at least a dozen persons watched her walk into train passed from the first to the empty class coach. To get ahead of her, the murderer would have had to skip through the door like a jackrabbit, and that would hardly have passed unnoticed. But if he followed right on her heels, the men who had been looking her over would have certainly speculated on what he was up to." End quote. The windows on the train were all securely locked from the inside, so the murderer couldn't have climbed in that way. The article continues, quote, There are only two ways he could have entered the murder car. He might have gone in through the regular entrance, as she did, either a little ahead of her or right behind her. But if so, many people saw her go into the coach, and why didn't someone see him? Or he might have entered from the second-class coach, through the end door, and after stabbing Madame Toreau, gone back the same way, making his escape in the crowd after the train had stopped. But it is most unusual for subway passengers in Paris to move from a second class to a first class coach while the train is in motion, so the man would have been noticed. End quote. The doctor who examined Thoreau's body said whoever had delivered the knife into her neck must have been very, very good at killing people with a knife to the neck. The location of the knife was precisely where it needed to be in order to pierce her jugular and they left the knife behind, likely knowing that removing it would give them less time to get away, as she may have slumped over even more quickly with the blood loss. As it turned out, several witnesses said they saw a car following the bus Thoreau had taken to the station, and that a man with a broken-looking nose got out and followed her into the station. Police believed it unlikely that a man that conspicuous would have been able to pull off the murder without being seen in the act. But perhaps his job had been to see where Thoreau was going and tip off the assassin. Indeed, the man with the broken nose stood very close behind Thoreau as she bought her train ticket. So it's possible that he saw where she was headed and signaled to the knife wielder. But what would assassins want with a young Italian woman who every single article from the time referred to as beautiful? 
so much so that I wanted to throw my computer out the window. Not a single article mentioned how handsome, or not, Isidore Fink was. Anyway. It turns out that the idea that Tarot may have had assassins after her was not so far-fetched. So, who really was Letitia Tarot? According to a piece on historicmysteries.com, quote, Letitia Nourissant Toureau was a beautiful 29-year-old Italian immigrant who had lived in Paris, France since the 1920s, where she had moved with her mother and siblings after her parents had split up. She was known to be kind and smart, often giving food to homeless children on the streets, end quote. Letitia had only been married six years when her husband, Jules Toureau, died. Thoreau's family, however, didn't know their son had married Letitia. Apparently, he'd never told them because he knew they wouldn't have approved of her. She was a working-class woman, whereas he came from the more better, non-working class. Everyone knows that people who don't work are better than people who do. Even though I'm also pretty sure there's a lot of stuff in the Bible about how working hard is the way to get into heaven, or one of the ways, you can also marry Jesus, or just accept him as your Lord and Savior, or tell a guy behind a wall the bad things you did in the past week, or have the tip of your penis cut off, or not have the tip of your penis cut off. Actually, it seems like given all the different ways you can get into heaven, it's not all that hard. But I do know that working oneself to death was sold to the so-called working-class people as a righteous and godly thing to do. Jesus likes to see a little grease under the fingernails. He likes a little coal dust in the lungs. He's big into crippling pain from hunching over a sewing machine in a dark factory for hours on end. So it actually makes no sense that the working class are also seen as less than. Like, if working so hard is so holy, shouldn't the people who do it also be holy? I'm so confused. Where was I? Oh, right. Jules Thoreau's family didn't know he was married to a filthy working-class person. I don't know the circumstances under which Jules died, but when he did and his family found out who he was married to, they severed all ties with Letitia and cut her out of the will. Fine, respectable behavior, that. Before the public caught wind of any of this, as far as they were concerned, Letitia Tarot was just a tragic young widow. A super hot one, but still. And then I can only assume that Jules' family took to the press to disparage her name. Cutting her out of the will wasn't enough. I don't know how else the public would have been made aware of her social status and clandestine marriage. Very quickly, public sentiment changed. Hot, though she may have been, the public cried, this woman was obviously a gold digger. Why else would she have married this man from a high class? Also, she liked to spend money. And everyone knows that women who like to spend money are not to be trusted. Witches, the lot of them. Her Italianness also rubbed the good people of Paris the wrong way, too. Though, to be fair, everyone who isn't French rubs the French the wrong way. The general view of Italians in Paris at the time was that they led unsavory lifestyles, doing disgusting things like going to dance halls. And while she was faithful to her husband when he was alive, afterward she did unforgivable things like have sex with men. 
Police allegedly uncovered evidence that Letitia had sexual encounters with men in hotels and in public parks, though one can hardly imagine what kind of evidence they could have possibly had to corroborate that. The public also decided that Letitia was a prostitute because, of course, they did. Police did not uncover any evidence of that claim. According to Historic Mysteries, quote, it came to light that Letitia was working for a private investigator and had been doing so for over a year. Even more surprising was the fact that she was unofficially working for the Paris police. She would look in the pockets when she was a coat room attendant, relaying information she'd found to authorities. Cloak rooms were known to be a place to drop letters that could not be intercepted, end quote. In a paper titled Murder in the Metro, Mysterious Death Leads to Scholarly Work on Gender and Fascism in 1937 France, authors Annette Finley Crosswhite and Gail K. Brunel wrote, quote, Thoreau not only worked in a glue factory by day and a bal musette by night, she also gained intermittent employment as a sometimes mouche or informant with a detective agency in central Paris called Agence Roof, where she specialized in surveillance and message delivery. Much of her detective work was done in the Bals Musette. Her beauty was her greatest asset since her good looks gave her entry into many places and access to people she was expected to watch. Through her employer, Georges Rufinac, it appears she began working unofficially for the investigative division of the Paris police, and in this capacity, infiltrated La Cagoule, or Comité Secret d'Action Révolutionnaire, CSAR, end quote. Letitia was obviously intelligent and a hard worker who had at least three jobs, but still we know that her beauty was her greatest asset. Sigh. Anyway. According to Historic Mysteries, quote, The Kagul was a pro-fascist, anti-communist, anti-Semitic terrorist group. Post-war France was a unitary parliamentary republic governed by a socialist party, and the Kagul was trying to dismantle the system. The goal of the Kagul was to overthrow the government and reinstate a monarchy to eventually lead to a fascist dictator. They were inspired by Benito Mussolini's fascist Italian state. The organization had powerful members, including retired Navy and Army officers, heads of business, doctors, and engineers. Many members also came from distinguished, established families." End quote. The Kagul was largely financed by the likes of bigwigs at L'Oreal and Michelin. Distinguished, established families and major multinational corporations, a.k.a. the upper class. Oh, I'm just kidding. Some of my best friends are upper class. Who am I kidding? No, they're not. Even the ones who are wealthy are still just as trashy as me. Anyway. In her work as a spy for the good guys, Thoreau, using the pseudonym Yolande, took one for the team and got romantically involved with La Cagoule's top smuggler. According to Finley Crosswhite and Brunel, quote, by the spring of 1937... The Kagul began to suspect Thoreau of deceit and set a trap for her. News of an incoming arms run was leaked to her, but when the car was stopped at the Swiss border, it was empty. The ruse cost Thoreau her life. The Kagul leadership met on May 10, 1937, and determined her fate. 
In all probability, the group's most notorious assassin, Jean Filiol, was ordered to kill her. Filiol proceeded to pull off the perfect crime and fled to Spain before World War II broke out. He finished his life a rich man near San Sebastian, end quote. Despite a pretty solid theory, no one from La Cagoule was ever arrested or punished for Thoreau's murder. Apparently, because of all those people from distinguished families, the police didn't want to touch La Cagoule. Apparently, fascism pays. And so, if that is the case, then how did assassin Jean Filiot pull off this impossible murder? The author of the blog Best France Forever, who for some reason has her picture and bio up on the site but not her name, posted this theory. Quote, When Letitia arrived on the platform that Sunday evening, the 16th of May, there were over 100 people waiting for the train. Remember, the next day was a public holiday, so people were going out for a night on the town, Letitia included. While some might argue that this meant there were a hundred witnesses, we can equally say that there was a crowd into which a killer could pass unnoticed. Letitia waited on the platform for the train. As it arrived and was emptied of passengers, those people waiting pressed forward, eager to board, single-minded in their determination to find a seat. Only Letitia got into the first-class carriage. She entered at 6.25 p.m., sat down, and waited for the train to depart. When it did, finally, at 6.27 p.m., it is probable that Letitia was already dying. This window of time, the 90 to 120 seconds while the train idled on the platform, would have been enough time for the killer to act. He followed her into first class, unobserved, since the other passengers were focused on boarding, and attacked her from behind. The killer stabbed her only once, a single effective blow that cut her jugular which would have taken only seconds. He could then have got off the train and either exited the station or got into a different carriage. There was unlikely to have been noticeable bloodstains on his clothes since it was a single stab and the knife was left in the wound, stemming the blood flow. When the train engineer, who later provided a witness statement saying that Letitia was alive and alone as the train departed Port de Charenton, saw Letitia sitting upright in her seat, he wouldn't have realized that she was already dying. The knife was on the right side of her neck, concealed from his view. The blade had cut her spinal cord, paralyzing her to the spot, leaving her unable to move or gesture or cry out for help. Her final movement, falling from her seat onto the carriage floor, was involuntary, a result of the brakes being applied as the train came to a halt in the next station." Of the more than 800 people interviewed about her death, not one person ever came forward to say they saw the man who killed Thoreau in that otherwise empty train car on a crowded train in a very short span of time. To this day, the case is considered the perfect crime, at least officially. I suppose it might be important to keep in mind that if police were too scared to go after La Cagoule, I would imagine your average Joseph or Josephine wasn't about to point the finger at them if they had seen them plunge the knife into Letitia Tarot's neck. It's terrifying to think that something so horrific could happen to someone in such a public place. Equally terrifying is the notion of somehow being murdered inside a locked room without a single clue left behind. Whether you're in a crowd or all alone, you may not be safe. 
Perhaps the most terrifying is the notion that there are people out there who can commit these crimes and melt into the crowd and go on with life as though nothing at all happened. They can stand back and watch as one expert after another is at a loss to come up with anything that might lead to any kind of answer or justice. Sadly, all of our conjecture and connecting of dots won't change the fact that we will never really know what happened to Isidore Fink or Letitia Tarot. And sadder still is the knowledge, regardless of the odd circumstances, that two lives were violently extinguished. Even if we could solve this murder together, strangers, there's not much peace to be had once that door is unlocked. Next time on Strange and Unexplained, a harmless meme created as part of a fun internet art challenge spun out of control and led two little girls to commit an unspeakable crime, the Slender Man. And if you want even more Strange and Unexplained, head on over to our Patreon, where you get three bonus episodes a month for just five bucks. And for seven bucks, you get all that, plus all the regular episodes ad-free. Patreon.com slash Strange and Unexplained. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, and produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. Research by Jess McKillop, editing by Eve Kerrigan, sound engineering and mixing by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actor for this episode was Crystal Simmons. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for a story we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, head to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. Follow us on socials. We are SNUPod. And join our Facebook page to join into the conversation. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review and a quick sentence really helps the show out a lot. If you don't like the show, you can leave a terrible review. The name of the podcast is Rudy Giuliani's Common Sense. <laughs>